This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Valeria Luiselli discusses her new book, Tell Me How It Ends. Then PW contributing editor Judith Rosen recaps the Children's Institute. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly Bestseller List, powered by NPD BookScan. We've got so many new books on the hardcover fiction list that I'm just going to hit some highlights here real quick. Uh, new number two is All By Myself Alone by Mary Higgins Clark. Uh, we called this in our review a lesser effort. Um, obviously, she is a, a venerated author of mysteries um, with many great books under her belt. Uh, this one is not 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 quite so terrific not up to her best standards um features lottery winners alvira and willie Meehan, who were last seen in her novel as time goes by from 2016 and uh when a murderer strikes on their luxury cruise that they're using to celebrate their wedding anniversary alvira slips into sleuthing mode and we say that the sweet relationship between alvira and willie is some consolation in this formulaic thriller that's short on suspense mm. And number four, we have The Lost Order by Steve Barry. Uh, this is the 12th thriller featuring former Justice Department operative Cotton Malone. And our review says that Barry delivers exactly what fans of this best-selling series have come to expect, an intricately plotted, action-paced storyline that seamlessly blends history with provocative speculation. And uh, this one is uh, set in rural Arkansas, where uh, Malone is entangled with the most powerful, subversive organization in the history of the United States. And we say the fusion of contemporary and historical adventure makes this a page-turner of the highest order. And uh, down at number nine is Earthly Remains by Donna Leon. This is the 26th mm. book in her Commissario Guido Brunetti mystery series. Uh, he's a policeman in Venice. And uh, this book finds him questioning an arrogant lawyer who is accused of drugging a young woman at a party who subsequently died. And uh, the uh, interview gets so contentious that Brunetti himself has a heart seizure and winds up in the hospital. So wow. uh, it's a challenge to write a mystery book where your protagonist has been prescribed complete bed rest. Mm. But uh, Leon manages it. And we say that along the way to the poignant ending, Brunetti develops insights into nature and humankind's failure to protect it, as well as the nature of guilt and its role in a man's life. And number 17, we have a American War by Omar El-Akkad. Uh, we gave this a starred review. It's a debut novel um, set in 2074. Uh, and we say that it transports us to a terrifyingly plausible future in which the clash between red states and blue has become deadly and the president has been murdered over a contentious fossil fuels bill. So this sounds like one for the fans of politics as well as near future science fiction. Mm -hmm. And uh, we say it's part family chronicle, part apocalyptic fable and a vivid narrative of a country collapsing in on itself where political loyalties hardly matter given the ferocity of both sides and unrelenting violence. 
sense. This is a very dark read, creating a world that's all too familiar in its grisly realism. Wow. And at number 18, another starred review for Prussian Blue, a Bernie Gunther novel by Philip Kerr. Uh, this is the stunning 12th novel in the series, and we say it races along on two parallel tracks. Um, one set in 1956, uh, which is where the main action takes place, and another set in uh, April 1939 uh, with a World War II thread. And we say that Kerr once again brilliantly uses a whodunit to bring to horrifying life the Nazi regime's corruption and brutality. And that's what we've got on the hardcover fiction. Well, I think on nonfiction, I'll hit our top ones as well, because there are quite a few. We've been talking about how it just seemed to repeat time and again. There weren't very many new debuts. But uh, number two, topping the list, Anne Lamott's Hallelujah Anyway, Rediscovering Mercy. Uh, we say with her trademark humor and candor, Lamott explores the spiritual imperative from Old Testament prophet Micah to love mercy, reviewing both the difficulties and the life-changing rewards of obeying this mandate. As in the previous works, we say Lamont's courageous honesty and humility, laced with wit and compassion, offer wisdom and hope for difficult times. Uh, number three is by Mel Garcia, the most beautiful, My Life with Prince. Uh, I'm sorry, this is Mate Garcia. This is uh, Prince's first wife, and um, she's giving us a look, an intimate and candid look at Prince. We don't have a review of that one. Um, we do have a couple of books that are, again, about activating your brain, uh, some self-help books. One is Headstrong, uh, The Bulletproof Plan to Activate Untapped Brain Energy to Work Smarter and Think Faster in Just Two Weeks. Dave Asprey, this is at Number five, uh, we have another one at number nine, Make Your Bed, a little bit different from Brain, but little things that can change your life and maybe the world, uh, according to the subtitle. And then we also have the memoir by uh, Alec Baldwin called Nevertheless. Uh, this is at number 11. And finally, the last one I'm going to uh, touch on is Chipper Jones, ball player. Uh, he's the uh, he's got a he's the one he's he's been 23 years with Atlanta Braves, and this is an insider's look into professional baseball. And in this uh, memoir, Coatrin Walton, a sports writer who covered the Braves for nearly 20 years, uh, Walton Jones, with the same tenacity and candor in which he played the game, takes readers into the backyard of his boyhood home in Pearson, Florida. Give it a nice review. And that's it. We're going to leave it at number 16. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Valeria Luiselli tells us about the plight of unaccompanied migrant children arriving in the U.S. We'll be right back. I'm Donna Freitas, author of The Happiness Effect, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Valeria Luiselli on the line. Her new book is Tell Me How It Ends. Hello, Valeria. So glad you could join us. Hi, Mark. Hi, Rose. Thank you very much for inviting me. So uh, this book is, is an essay in 40 questions, as the subtitle says, and it was inspired, uh, it seems, by the volunteer work you did as an interpreter with an immigration court in New York. Tell us about it. That's right. Well, the first time I ever heard about the arrival of unaccompanied child migrants uh, in great numbers to the U.S. was during the the summer of 2014, while I was with my family on a road trip from Manhattan to Arizona, and we we heard we heard something on the radio, and then started following the story 
more closely on the radio and then started reading more and more about it. That was um, that was exactly the time that the crisis, um, the immigration crisis, was declared. And it was declared a crisis because there had been a sudden surge in arrivals between October 2013 and that summer of 2014, 80,000 children had arrived alone at the border. Um, so it was very, it was a story that, that, that somehow hit close to home. And at the same time, it, it seemed unbelievable and unbearable to think. And, and I, I, I just followed it very closely for the next month. And through my own um, less urgent and less traumatic, much less traumatic uh, immigration troubles, I ended up speaking to lawyers often and, um, and through that ended up working in court as a volunteer interpreter. And um, there in court, uh, as an interpreter, I, I, I used a questionnaire that uh, a group of organizations came up with, a group of organizations that, that decided to group together and respond to the, to the, to the crisis in 2014. And uh, they called themselves I Care Group. And they came up with this questionnaire, which is basically a series of questions um, with which to screen children and try to understand their story and then see if they are eligible for some kind of immigration relief. So if a child shows up at the border unaccompanied, how could that child not be eligible for for some sort of assistance? What what happens you know when when they fail this test or how is how is that possible? Yeah, it's a good question, right? Um well first of all there's there is a law that 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 protects kids um from from every nation in the world and 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 thanks to which a lot of children can can actually be eligible for for different forms of immigration relief like asylum or um a status called um special immigrant juvenile uh status and that law is the the law for the protection of of, um, of victims of human trafficking, mm. and it was well. Every child in the world, except Mexican and Canadian children, actually are are uh, that, that can benefit from this law, and that's due to a change that uh, President Bush made in two. 2007, shortly before leaving office, he, he, he made an amendment which excluded children from neighboring countries, so, so Canada and Mexico, but really just Mexico, because I've never known of a Canadian kid that migrates to the U.S., right? So, um, so t- Mexican children actually are immediate, most of them are immediately deported upon arrival. Wow. Um, and they're deported under... Uh, under the very cynically, um, very cynical and euphemistic term, voluntary return. Um, after um, a, a kind of questionnaire with with 
with uh, officers, which is called the Credible Fear Questionnaire. So if children don't demonstrate what an officer can determine as credible fear, and really that's just to the discretion of an officer, um, then they can be deported back. Most of the children from other countries, any other country that's not Mexico, um, are interviewed in this way and then are, are given a chance to to enter the country and if they find a lawyer, then defend their case against deportation. Um, but but not all children. And those, those, those children that are not are usually deported back to their home countries under that term, voluntary return. So let's touch on, you know, maybe a couple of those questions, such as uh, there was one uh, you write about, why did you come to the U.S.? I mean, it seems straightforward enough, but you write that something like this often determines the outcome of, of the bid for citizenship. So take us through this question and then tell us what you did in that chapter. Well, the whole book is structured around that that questionnaire um, and that questionnaire and, and yeah. the the idea behind behind that was to be able to offer a kind of x-ray of the American immigration system of immigration law in, in the United States and at the same time slowly paint a panorama of the lives of Central American children and the reasons why they why they migrate here, um, and at the same time, in another layer, uh, I was interested in 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 being able to to reflect on on the historical roots. Of, of the crisis that we are facing now and the share the shared responsibility among um, among the different participants um, the different political actors in this crisis and when when I say that I mean I mean the the governments of 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 Mexico of the United States and of the northern triangle that is El Salvador Honduras and Guatemala so so through through that first question, why did you come to the United States? I I I open up um, a self questioning, of course, of, regarding my my own reasons to have um, left Mexico ten years ago and decided to to live in the United States, and and of course uh, open the question in order to be to, to be able to talk about why children flee and are fleeing uh, Central America in, in, in such large numbers. And, and then, of course, um, do, do what I, 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 I just explained to you, which is offer this kind of x-ray of the system and a panorama of children's lives. You mentioned that the children are responsible for securing their own lawyers. How do they find out about this responsibility and go about doing that? Well, they're told that they have to find their own lawyers, and that they they they're not that that they won't be given one. But Miranda rights don't apply, you know. Um, right. I mean, a lot um, to 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 immigrants. Um, 
part of the explanation, a lawyer should probably explain this to you, not me. I'm, I'm, I'm not a lawyer. Um, but part of the explanation is, is I think, that, that immigration is not dealt with uh, in criminal court. Um, and in fact, migrating without proper documents is not actually uh, contrary to what many people think and say it's not actually a crime, but an administrative fault. So, um, so none of this is, is dealt with in, in, in criminal court where, where people are, are indeed given um, the right to, to free counsel and to an attorney at no cost. Uh, that's not the case of undocumented migrants. Undocumented migrants have to pay for their own lawyers unless they can find pro bono attorneys willing to help them. And that's, I mean, that's what the organizations around the country are doing, and I think doing so well. Um, organizations like The Door or um, Safe Passage or Caresen or Kind or many others. Um, I, I, I know particularly the ones in New York because they're the ones that I've, I've worked with before, but there are many organizations all over the country that um, have people in court and uh, they wait for children to, to arrive in court for their first notice to appear. I went, uh, sorry, after they receive their first notice to appear and then, and then appear in court for a judge for the first time. And they they basically have a space in court um, where they can receive children and then screen them and then tell them that they c are going to try to help them find um, a pro bono lawyer. And and when children do find a lawyer or when, when organizations find lawyers for them, um, it's very likely that they'll be able to stay. It's it's rare that a child will get deported if he or she has um, a lawyer to, to defend their case. Sadly, though, the last news I heard about uh, organizations in, in court, um, which was just last week, speaking to, to, to um, one of the lawyers that I've worked with before, was that the room, the space that immigration court in New York had had um, that the space that was given and to, to organizations so that they could use it and, and receive children there is no longer uh, available to them, um, uh, partly because of the, the growing sense of crisis in immigration courts and, um, and the, the, the madness in there and the chaos. And so the, this, the, the room that that was used for, for, for children is no longer there, and apparently it's more chaotic right now than ever and more confusing than ever. So these kids have had some terrifying journeys. Some of them ride on top of freight trains, and, um, and we're talking about children. I mean, I think when we, when we say minors, someone might say, oh, well, that, that must mean that they're like teenagers or something. They're 16 or 17. But there, there are some very young kids who are making this journey. Well, that's right. There's, there's, there's kids as young as two years old or toddlers. I mean, but, wow. and there's, there's many children of a very young, young, young age. Um, and most of them, however, most of the ones who 
who make it here at least are are teenagers. Um, you have to remember that um, that through their journey across Mexico, many people die and disappear. And it's um, I mean, if, if if the situation in the U.S. is worrisome, um, and we have to as civil society be vigilant of 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 um, of how the system treats undocumented migrants, and we have to be there to to defend the most vulnerable as as civil society um, in the U.S. You, you have no idea what the situation is like in Mexico. There, there's just no, there's no, it, it's as if there were no law, um, no one to enforce it either. So um, last year, for example, um, in a period of six months, a report that was, that was published um, noted that more than 11,000 people went um what missing were were abducted in just a period of six months? Eleven thousand yeah. people crossing Mexico—that that's migrants crossing Mexico—and there are hundreds of thousands of Central Americans that are missing and most probably uh, dead. And so, um, the kids that make it to the U.S. are—I don't know if they are the—I don't know what percentage they represent of the kids that actually leave um, Central America, but definitely not all of them make it all the way here. And the ones that do make it are the older ones and the stronger ones and, and the ones that, that, that were lucky and um, the ones that, that were perhaps t- uh, uh, taken by coyotes and not completely alone. And... Um, Anyway, but yes, they are kids, and once they're here, uh, the most urgent thing is for them to be able to find family members. And most of them have family members here. Just a small percentage of them um, don't find family and end up living in, in federal custody in facilities that are, that are a little bit like, like jails, but for children um, where they're locked up. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Valeria Luiselli, author of Tell Me How It Ends. So uh, you write about, uh, among other things, a student group based at Hofstra and uh, also some of the organizations you work with. Who's, who's doing the work to help these kids? There are a lot of organizations doing fantastic work. Um, I was speaking previously of, of children... That don't that that come here and don't find family members or or don't find safe homes and are are then put in into um, um, federal facilities that are a, a bit like um, jails for children and those 
children, for example, um, there's an organization called uh, the Young Center that works specifically um, to train child advocates for children in, in that circumstance and um, to find them lawyers and um, try to get them, of course, out of where they, of, 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 of those, of of those buildings, of those um, detention spaces, and um, find them families and find them, w- once they get out, um, they follow up and try to help them in their integration process in society here. Um, then there are organizations that, um, like The Door uh, and Caresen and Catholic Charities, and kind and safe passage and strong, which um, which deal with with different parts of the process um, that a child arriving here alone faces. Some of them provide just legal aid, basically. Others take them beyond legal aid and offer kind of a more comprehensive uh, programs for for children's integration through through um, English classes and um, internship possibilities and hip-hop classes and radio classes. and um, There are wonderful, wonderful people um, doing a lot of work, of course. It's never enough, right? It's never... Mm. It, all, it all... All of them are able to, to, to patch some of the holes, but... But but not enough. Not all of them. And yes, the Tia, the Tia that you asked me about, um, is a, is still a very very young um, organization that a group of students and I created in Hofstra University in 2015. Um, and the Tias, as they call themselves, the, the Teenage Immigrant Integration Association. But what the Tias do is they they receive um, younger students on our campus. So college students basically receive teenage students on, 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 on campus grounds. And we offer uh, English one-to-one sessions and help with college applications and also internship possibilities. And then, of course, we our most popular uh, event really uh, is a series of soccer games that we, that we organize. Um, and that's how we recruit um, huh. kids to come to campus. So uh, you had mentioned when we were talking about the chapter, why did you come to the U.S., that you uh, used that you know, to, as a form to discuss not only – you know the, what's what's happening what's on the on the uh, questionnaire, but also you, uh, and and so you were born in Mexico City. You came here ten years ago. Turning the question to you, why did you come here, and what's it like for you living here now? <laughs> um, it's a very hard question to answer, Mark. But um, I yes, I was born in Mexico City, uh, but I, I grew up all over the place. Um, I grew up in. South Korea and South Africa and India and Spain and France, um, basically in five different continents, um, and sort of like always exposed to 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 very many different languages and um, attended about ten or eleven different schools and lived 
in a different house every two years. So, so my my upbringing was very was was in was constantly changing. It was a. It always felt like I I was leaving one life and starting another, and um, had been so many people already by the age of 16 or 17. And um, I think when I arrived in New York the first time, the first time I arrived, I was, I, was, I was a bit younger. I was maybe 21, and I came here to spend a summer because I wanted to be a, a dancer, and I wanted to dance with a Jose Limon company, which is here. Um, so I came to train with dancers from the company. And um, I was never any good at dance, really, although I tried really hard. Uh, so <laughs> luckily I, I realized, though, and I ended up not not dancing and, and dedicating myself to to writing. And um, anyway, the, ten- the first time I came here in, to New York at 21 or so, I, I, I felt somehow immediately at home. Perhaps because this is a city where you can always be, be foreign somehow, and 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 at the same time belong, right? Um, not it's not as easy for the kids that I see in court as it was for me to have a sense of belonging, and that's part of why I am, I guess, so concerned and obsessed with with being able to to reach out to as many as possible um, of these kids and, and, and helping them find a sense of belonging. Um, I, I feel that New York gave me that, and I hope to 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 make other members of, of my community here, um, that my Hispanic community, um, children that Mexico treats so badly, I hope to make them to, to be able to, to do something here once, once they get here. So yeah, that's that's. I mean, I think New York, the U.S., New York, perhaps in particular, um, has given me also a sense that 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 there are strong community ties, and that people people devote their their lives to. Um, to helping the, and their communities and strengthening the ties between the members of their communities and 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 that's that's been very inspiring always. Um, I don't think I've lived in any place in the world where I had such a strong feeling of 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 people creating community. Um, so that's something that keeps me here, um, even even despite the. The very difficult months that that we've all uh, seen uh, since the Trump campaign and the election and the results, uh, where for for the first time ever, I, I I did ask myself whether I wanted to continue living here or not. Um, in part because I don't I don't like the idea of my my children my ch- my child my children my my daughter and my stepson. Um, Growing up with the idea that um, that being Mexican is not 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 great, um, that it's or have a feeling that there's a there's a stigma attached to their origin. Um, my daughter once suggested during the Trump campaign that that we stop speaking Spanish in the street so that 
people wouldn't know we're Mexican. Oh, and that's breaking. Mm, that, yeah, the, I mean, when she said that, I, I, for a while I thought, mm, you know, do, do I want her to grow up in this country? Um, and, I mean, my answer so far has been, I mean, there's, <laughs> so far, yes. I mean, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see how bad it gets, of course. Uh, but I think this is where we're going to stay. So um, you mentioned your interest in dance. You've worked as a librettist for the New York City Ballet, which seems like a wonderful way to combine your, your interest in dance with your writing. You've also collaborated with art galleries. How do those collaborations work? Well, they work differently um, depending on, on what the nature of the collaboration is and uh, what I am myself interested in, in, in setting out to explore. So the, the collaboration with, with Christopher Wieldon um, in, in, in the New York City Ballet was, was really interesting. It was, it was through, um, through um, a score. He had a score by, by Hinestera, the Argentinian composer, uh, where there were some annotations apparently of of how of what the ballet's general plot was, but there there wasn't um, uh, and there isn't, to my knowledge, any um, available libretto of 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 the actual um, ballet and the story. So I felt like I had to do the work that maybe like a someone in in, in art restoration does, mm. which is kind of um, fill. A few the, the gaps in 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 the original material. So that's what I did. I, I mean, I, I listened to the music and I read the very few annotations on the score, and then imagined what how, how to link those things together. And then I came here while he was um, while while Wilden was um, was still doing rehearsals with with the company, and and that was really magical to to see. I've never, I've never again written for the stage, and it was just very um, magical to see something that you've written in three dimensions. Um, dancers creating space while dancing in it when you had just imagined um, uh, a few uh, lines and phrases, perhaps um, with their bodies, but 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 never imagined an entire world kind of being. Um, like popping up in 3D before you. So it was very beautiful. And then um, other collaborations have been completely different. The most recent one with um, with a juice factory slash gallery slash art collection, as bizarre as that may sound, um, was was like was the beginning of of what what later became my novel, The Story of My Teeth. And it was, um, so there's a juice factory in Mexico called Humex, who was Mexicanos, Mexican juice. Um, and they, aside from producing juice, they, they fund a big art collection called the Humex collection. And the Humex wanted me to, to write a kind of, um, fictional, uh, it, it wasn't very, it was ambivalent. Uh, they wanted me to write something as they were in the process of putting together an exhibition in their gallery. And I found that idea a little bit boring. Um, 
to be honest. So, and I was very interested, on the contrary, in in the idea that there was a juice factory that was somehow funding an art collection. And I was particularly interested in what the workers in the juice factory thought of all of that. So I asked if I could write for them. And initially, um, there was some resistance, but later, later people in the gallery were actually incredibly supportive and helped me put together logistics, um, a complicated mechanism um, uh, by which I would send installments to the factory and they would be printed and then distributed among the workers. And then the workers would get together and read the pieces that I sent, the installments, read them out loud, and then comment them. And and then they would all um, record those those sessions and of uh, of allowed readings and comments and and often 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 also harsh criticisms from the workers, and um, and then, and then all of that was sent back to me in an MP3 file. I would listen to it and then and then write the next installment. So it just, we just went back and forth like this for some time um, until until. Uh, I had finished a piece that eventually, uh, after a year or more of work, became became a novel. So, has this essay collection given you a taste for nonfiction? Well, this is my this is my second work of nonfiction. My my first book, the, the first book I, I published ever, and the first book I wrote was um, um, in English. It's called Sidewalks. And um, and that's the first time. I mean, I started as a, as a nonfiction writer, hmm. and that was a book about displacements and language and translation as well, uh, though though much more um, lyrical and more much more literary as well. Uh, though, funnily enough, at the same time as I was writing that essay, that book of essays, sorry, uh, I was I was a student in the UNAM and then a national university. National Autonomous University of Mexico, uh, where I was finishing a thesis in political philosophy, which was a criticism, very badly written and very, probably very pretentious, but but very 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 well meaning, um, a criticism of of uh, John Rawls's theory of justice from the from the viewpoint of illegal migration, precisely. Um, so I, I I was I was reading. About um, Mexican immigration in, in that period, which was um, there was still, I think Mexican immigration was still on the rise, and, and only on, only a little bit after uh, after those years began um, declining, and now it's it's negative. Uh, that that means more Mexicans return to Mexico than 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 arrive in the U.S. But anyway, so I was writing about illegal immigration and. Um, and and John Rawls at the same time as that first book, and now now ten years later, a little bit more than ten years later, um, I'm sort of doing it like over again. <laughs> Maybe we, we all just work in loops, right? We've been talking with Valeria Luisali, and you can find her book "Tell Me How It Ends" in stores right now. Valeria, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Rose. Thanks, Mark. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW contributing editor Judith Rosen takes us to the Children's Institute. Stay tuned. 
Hi, this is Holly Tucker, author of City of Light, City of Poison, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW contributing editor Judith Rosen is here to tell us all about the Children's Institute. Hi, Judith. Hi, Rose. Hi, Mark. Hello. Always nice to have you on the show. So um, give us a little bit of a sense of what went on at the Children's Institute this year and maybe provide some background information on the event for those who aren't familiar with it. Well, it's hard not to like an event that takes place in Portland, Oregon. Uh, beautiful weather, beautiful city, and a great book town. Um, start, we got to start off with a party at Powell's Books, the largest bookstore in the United States. So that was very exciting for a lot of us who had never had a chance to visit it before, other than through its website. Mm -hmm. Um, And the, the conference itself was really well thought out. It's part of the educational programming provided by the American Booksellers Association, uh, for its bookselling community, and it has grown a lot over the last uh, seven years. The first conference was held at Book Expo, but for the last four years, the conference has moved around to different communities to give booksellers a chance to meet uh, other bookstores, sellers, and to just see other bookstores and how they do things. Um, I, I just thought this was was very nice. They had the largest number of booksellers since it started, 240 booksellers. And what made it particularly exciting was many of these people uh, were attending for the first time, and many were with new stores or, or um, stores that are about to open up. There was even an older toy store from New Hampshire G. Willikers, where the owners are transforming it into more of a bookstore rather than toy store. Wow, is that wow. that seems like something that wouldn't happen very much. Usually, uh, talk is kind of the other way around. Is can can bookstores sell things that aren't books to help make their margins? Right. But it sounds like children's books are having kind of a renaissance. They are having kind of a renaissance, and that doesn't mean that all the the new stores represented there were children's stores, although some were, but uh, Noel Santos, who is opening the first independent bookstore in a long time in the Bronx, was there. She's opening the Lit Bar, and she hopes to have it open in um, in the fall or, at, or maybe early next year, but she's well on her way. Of course, we joked with her since it's a bar and a bookstore what kind of wine she might be serving to children but of course she won't be serving kids anything but grape juice and milk wow so so tell us a little bit more about the institute well what was also exciting about this conference is there's been so much talk about we need diverse books and also about we need diverse bookstores, and we need diverse booksellers, and we need a diverse bookselling organization. And I felt like the ABA had really taken those 
um, comments to heart and had put together a conference that would really address those needs and still speak to children's booksellers in particular. So it started out with a presentation on implicit bias, meaning biases we're not even aware that we have, unconscious biases, mm. and, and how that affects hiring. Now, it's really directed to ways that even very tiny stores can try to diversify their staff. Mm. And the woman who spoke, Ilsa Govin, was quite an accomplished presenter, and it was really interesting information. There were also some fabulous authors, including one author-to-be who was only 12 years old, um, Marley Diaz. You might remember when she was 11, she started a project to get a 1,000 black girls' books. Mm-hmm. And what she wanted was to get more literature that speaks to young people into school libraries, which is where many uh, children, particularly children who don't have a lot of money in their homes uh, to buy books, get, get most of their books. And so she started this project and it took off amazingly. She got well over a thousand. She's distributed nine thousand books to date. Uh, Black girls' books is her passion, and she has a new book coming out called Marley Diaz Gets It Done, and so can you, where she talks to other young people about how she went about doing what she did and how they can follow up on what they care about whether it's sports or something else. She was in conversation with the children's, uh, with a children's bookseller, Susanna Hermans. Actually, she is a wonderful children's bookseller, but she's a general bookseller, and she has a store in Rhinebeck, New York, Oblong Books and Music. Um, and she, uh, the two of them were just amazing in dialogue, and also when the audience asked questions. Uh, Marley was just right on top of it. It was it was really a, a pleasure. Another author who stood out was Jason Reynolds, who is a prolific children's author. He has several books coming out this year, including one called Long Way Down, which comes out this fall, and it takes place uh, on an elevator as a boy with a gun tries to decide if he's going to shoot the person who killed his brother. Wow. Wow. It's a very powerful book. It's all told in poetry. And he talked about how, as a young, poor black boy growing up in Washington, D.C., he didn't have any access to books that really spoke to him being asked to read Moby Dick <laughs> or, uh, really really just had no connection for him. So at age nine, he stopped reading books, and he didn't read books again until he was a little over 17 and took a job with a bookstore, which is now out of business, called Caribou, which, is an, which at its height was the largest African-American bookstore chain in the U.S. and was located in poor areas all around Washington, D.C., and that really made a difference for him. He listened to rap music instead of reading books, and he felt like 
rap music addressed him and what he was going through. Mm. And he really wanted booksellers to think about carrying the books that that all kinds of children can see themselves reflected in. And that was Marley Diaz's message as well. Well, that just sounds really wonderful and um, like a very inspiring event. It was inspiring. Uh, not that there wasn't some nuts and bolts on sure. greeting customers <laughs> and, and things like that, but there were roundtable discussions with people from the group We Need Diverse Books about how to work with um, authors for in-school visits. There was a fascinating panel on how to work with customers with disabilities, but also have staff who have disabilities. And you might think of somebody in a wheelchair, but in fact, there are so many disabilities that just aren't visible when mm. you meet someone. Uh, yeah. So that that was that was. Uh, fascinating. I guess some people might have panic attacks, some people might have Tourette's, and so you just don't necessarily uh, see see anything. So that sounds um, like a really useful set of tools for booksellers of all kinds. Um, it was, and like all uh, ABA uh, uh, gatherings, there was an author reception where Booksellers got to meet lots and lots of wonderful authors. And in fact, uh, two authors who didn't necessarily have such a diversity uh, conversation that they wanted to bring to the fore, but wanted to talk about writing a difficult book. Aaron and Philip Stead were there with their editor, Francis Gilbert. And the difficult book that they put together, which reads beautifully, I understand, is a is based on just a snippet of a story from Mark Twain, and it's his only children's book. Neat. Wow. Great. Yes. Yeah, so we'll have to wait till October, although Philip and Aaron Stead are best known as picture book authors. This book is a little long for a picture book, but... It is filled with pictures and story, and they came up with a great way to to set uh, Mark Twain's tale. And I, I think it will resonate with a lot of people. It's geared to young people, but I think a lot of adults will want to read that as well. Well, Excellent. thank you so much for the report, Judith. It's always great to have you on the show. Thank you. And now a final word from our sponsors. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albany, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for an interview with Christopher Golden, author of Ararat. 
We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode stream live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 